This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. It's not easy for us busy geotechnical engineers to keep up with industry trends while keeping up with our engineering work. Therefore, it's our goal at the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast to help you do just that. We strive to keep our listeners informed with important industry topics and also to educate you on interesting technical topics and trends in the geotechnical world. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which is the first in our new tunneling series, I'll be talking with John Hurt, who's a principal at Arup. We'll be talking about what tunneling engineering is how it benefits the community, and what the future holds for the tunneling industry. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Tensar International. Here's a message from Tensar about their award-winning software, Tensar Plus, which is available to you at no cost. Check out Tensar Plus the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated Making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs, reports, and product data can be generated for your design. And training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Tensar Plus is your toolbox for success. Welcome to the show, John. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. Enjoying the summer heat of New York. All right, great. Well, we're glad to have you on the show. It would be great if you could share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself, talk a little bit about your career journey, and uh, how does that tie in with the engineering realm? As you can probably tell by my accent, I grew up in the UK, but I've been uh, working in the US over 20 years now. I guess in my engineering journey, I always had a, an interest in construction when I was growing up. I was kind of that kid that would look out the window whenever you're going past some roadworks or a construction site. And at school, I, you know, I love math and physics. So kind of engineering was fairly obvious choice. And when I was looking at careers, a lot of the UK um, engineering institutions would run an industry weekends where they would take a bunch of guys out of high school and put you up in dorm for a weekend and take you around various construction sites or factories. So I did that for both civil engineering and chemical engineering. 
got to see some pretty interesting things for both, but ultimately decided on civil. I then got an opportunity to do a gap year before I did my studies. I was kind of forced to because I was given a deferred offer by the university. So I found a job in industry, which was actually really good. It set me up for my education because I kind of knew a little bit about what I was getting into. And that was just doing general civil engineering, I guess, heavy civil, I would call it, like uh, roads, bridges, structures, that kind of thing. And I did my undergraduate in engineering with an emphasis on civil Started work uh, for the first year or so, I was just doing general civil engineering. But then as part of the UK chartership process, you kind of have to experience both sides of the fence for design and construction. So I got seconded to a construction site and uh, I did my best to make it a tunneling job because I was interested in tunneling. So I got seconded to the Jubilee Line extension. I had a fantastic 18 months working on sites, uh, building Southwark Station in London, which was a lot of uh, hand mining and you know, fairly complex tunneling work right under a railway viaduct. And after that point, I kind of got the tunneling bug. So I, I switched jobs and I, I started working on the high speed one tunnels of 19 miles of tunnels under London, transferred to New York to work on Second Avenue and then got the chance to work on a number of fantastic projects around North America after that. For those that might not be too familiar with tunneling or tunnel engineering, what is tunnel engineering? I mean, I'm pretty sure people have been through tunnels, but what is tunnel engineering? A good way to just describe it is to safely create underground space. And I think there's a number of different types of tunnel engineering. And even though tunnel engineering itself is a specialty within that, there's a number of other specialties. So that what I generally do is border mine tunneling and if you gave me an open cut tunnel or an immersed tube, I wouldn't really know what to do with that. So mine tunneling where you go and start from a shaft or portal and you go into the ground. I think in terms of engineering, it's a mixture of geotechnical or ground engineering and structural engineering. We have to kind of understand both worlds and how they work together. And I think one thing about tunneling in particular is it's very much related to the construction methods. You know, it's fairly mechanized processes and very specialized pieces of equipment and specialized ways of doing things. So to be a good designer, which is the side of the fence I'm on now, is you really have to understand how things are built. That's something I really enjoy, the kind of link between the two sides. And you also need, as a designer, I think a fairly good multidisciplinary understanding. So you need to understand hydraulics for water tunnels and rail systems for transit tunnels. We do a lot of work with tunnel ventilation to kind of keep everything ventilated and, and safe. And obviously on the material side, understanding that as well. So it's it's quite a broad subject as well. How does one get all that experience? Is it just project by project asking more questions? Yes. Engineering is a constant journey of learning. There's always something new to learn. What partly what makes engineering fun is working with a big team of you know skilled individuals and you can learn from them. And that's I think part of the learning process is knowing when you need to ask a question as well. All right, great. And when you think about tunneling, what are some of the advantages and, and disadvantages of tunneling? A tunnel wouldn't be the solution for every project, but what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? So in cities, I think uh, the advantages are you're occupying surface space, which is at a premium. And then a lot of the systems we put in really need to be separated from other systems. For a subway line, you need it separate from the streets and from other subway lines, railroad lines. So you know, with tunneling, you can create that space that doesn't have uh, interruption. And then outside of cities, you know, if you're going through mountainous regions or hills and you want to provide systems that have certain gradients of 
the tunnel tunneling is often the, the only way to do that. We get involved in some specialist projects. We're doing a big science research project facility right now in South Dakota, which the reason it's underground is to avoid getting neutrinos from the sun. So there's, there's other very specialist reasons like that. I think another advantage is during construction, you're really limiting your surface disruption to a specific area. And maybe you could say that's the disadvantage is <laughs> all your disruption is limited to a specific area. So you have a concentrated zone of activity, but hopefully you can mitigate that with noise protection and dust protection, things like that. On the disadvantage side, obviously tunnels are expensive uh, compared with surface construction. And there are risks as you're dealing with the ground and the ground is often very variable and difficult to define in advance. Whenever I think about disadvantages, it's always uh, an opportunity. I'm sure as a tunneling engineer, you have plenty of work. Yes, increasing. And, uh, you know, as cities get busier, there's some cities now like Hong Kong that are putting things like archive storage, you know, sewage facilities, they're putting them into underground to kind of free up surface space for people to live and work. The bigger our cities get, the more need there is for underground space. And I guess it becomes more challenging, right? Because you have more congested underground in addition to challenging geology. So it, it makes for very challenging design and construction. Yeah, understanding what is there and the impacts your new work will have on them is always a big challenge. And yeah, we're being forced to do tunnels that are more challenging because they're going deeper, they're going into ground that maybe we wouldn't have looked at you know, 50 years ago. The industry is constantly evolving in that way. And we're going to have several guests on that are going to be talking about tunnels. So this is kind of a preview here with this question. You know, what are the basic types of methods that are used for tunneling construction? So excluding the kind of open cut tunnels, which I mentioned earlier that I don't know that much about, and also the immersed tubes, which are floated into place, which are a very specialist area. I think you can split the rest of tunnels into probably three main areas. So there's the ones that are bored by the tunnel boring machines, and they can be in soft ground or hard rock or mixed ground. You have a soft ground mechanical excavation, which we would often call the sequential excavation method or the new Austrian tunneling method or the spray concrete lining method, depending on where in the world you come from. But that's really excavating soft ground and putting in the protection measures you need to enable that tunnel to stand up. And then you have the hard rock tunnels where you need to excavate by drill and blast or a road header type of uh, equipment that the rock essentially will support itself. You may need to put in, you know, localized support. But, you know, with those three types of tunneling, you pretty much cover the, what we look at under the board tunnels category. And if somebody is listening, they say, wow, I want to be a tunneling engineer. How do you become a tunneling engineer? Like, how does that happen? I know it starts with civil engineering. How does that happen? The basic education is would be civil engineering. And as I mentioned before, if you can have a structures focus or a geotech focus or ideally both, that's great. But then uh, the learning really starts, I think, when you start work with experience. The route I took was to start on site and really understand how things are built before moving into the design world. I definitely recommend that. I think understanding construction is, is fundamental. You can survive without it, but I think it's important. But then, yes, gaining experience on projects is probably the best. The other thing I would say is the tunneling community is fairly small. We tend to all know each other. And so building that network, as I said before, you know, sometimes just knowing 
you need to ask somebody else a question and lean on someone for advice. You know, you can know who's a specialist in a particular area or someone who's had a particular project experience that you can call up to find out. Building that network is so important. And, you know, oftentimes people wait till much later in their career to start thinking about that. So I think the earliest you establish that network, the better you are. That's really a nice piece of advice there. And I understand you're very involved within the uh, International Tunneling Association. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, I've been uh, involved in working group two at the International Tunneling Association for about eight years now. So the International Tunneling Association has a number of working groups that look at different aspects of the profession. Working group two is called research. It's not really a pure research group. You know, we're not doing first principles research. What we're really doing is collating kind of state-of-the-art practice in various areas that's maybe coming out of research or individual projects and trying to disseminate that around the industry. So writing guidelines on state-of-the-practice and state-of-the-art work and doing publications. It's been great experience for me. I've learned a lot, get a real global perspective on a lot of issues. I'm currently leading a, a group that's looking at damage to tunnel linings, either during construction or during their life, and trying to record that, quantify that, and come up with means of minimizing it during the design process. For that eight years, is that committee made up of all people that are in the industry, practicing engineers, or do you also have folks on like the contracting side and academia? What's the makeup of that working group too? Yes. So, I mean, the the main meetings of the working group are at the the, um, the World Tunnel Congress, which happens once a year. So we have basically a day of workshops then. And yeah, that group, I mean, it's open to any people that attend and you do get a mix There's certainly some from academia, various professors and from research universities, a lot of folk from the design side and some from the construction side from the whole range of countries. You get a lot of different perspectives. And then within that, we have subgroups that work on specialist topics and we tend to have meetings every one or two months to try and progress that work. Well, eight years is a long time. You must be enjoying it. Yeah, I see it as a learning experience more than uh, me kind of contributing to any, you know, anything. It's a great benefit to me. So uh, it's good. Well, thank you so much for your contributions. Appreciate that. And it looks like you're also involved with uh, Engineers Without Borders USA. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, how did that uh, help in growing your engineering career? Or how did it make it more fulfilling? Engineers Without Borders or EWB USA, it's a really interesting organization kind of has a dual purpose. So one is probably the more obvious one, which is partnering with communities and disadvantaged areas to build a more sustainable world. So that's both in the US and overseas. And it's a lot of water and sanitation projects, but also bridges and buildings and agricultural projects. But the second part of the mission is really to develop the volunteers, you know, themselves, give them learning opportunities, exposure to different projects and challenges and growing as leaders. And there's numerous student and professional chapters around the country that work on these projects with individual communities. There's a central framework provided by engineers without borders for them to follow in terms of the various the project process. And there's also some QC and expert advice and in-country support provided by engineers without borders to help the projects be as successful as possible. I initially got involved. Uh, Arab is one of the supporters of Engineers Without Borders, and they have a corporate leadership council. So I sat on that, and then I got invited to join the board, and I'm just finishing my second term. So I've been on the board nearly six years now. 
I've also had the opportunity to work on projects. Arab, you know, have a project with EWB that USA that's in the Guatemala. It's a 11 mile water supply pipeline to a fairly remote village that was, you know, currently has water trucked in or from rainwater harvesting. So it's providing them for the first time with a water supply. So I was involved in that project. It's a fantastic chance to get out there, work with the community, kind of work with some local engineers and construction folk to develop the project. In terms of helping to grow my engineering career, I think you know it's always about making sure the, the solution is appropriate to the context in which, in which it's being placed, which applies just as much to transit systems or water systems in a city in the US as, as it does in San Francisco, Guatemala, which is where this project was. One of the really great things about engineering and in STEAM in general, so science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics is just the impact that it can have on the communities that we serve. And I think that that's a prime example. So you're a tunneling engineer, but through Engineers Without Border, you're going into a whole new community, another part of the world, and providing water. It's one of the most basic things that we need, right? So that's really awesome. And I have to imagine that if it's tied to Arab, you're probably, there's a number of your colleagues you're working together with on a project like that, right? Yes, that's correct. I mean, this was actually an Arab project that Arab sponsored and uh, we just had a purely Arab team. But one of my other roles at Arab is, is looking after some of our community engagement work. And so Engineers Without Borders is one of our key strategic partnerships. And so, yeah, trying to make opportunities for people to get involved in projects. Generally, we do this through the local professional chapter. So they'd be working with you know, engineers from a range of different companies all working together on projects. And if I can put a plug in to listeners, you know, if want to get involved, then there's, there's more than likely a professional chapter in a city near you and you can get involved in a small or a big way in, in a project. And if you have a particular specialty, then there's opportunities to, to become an expert advisor or a project reviewer as well. So plenty of opportunities and just reach out to EWB through the website. Great organization. We've been active with EWB for several years now. And, and I'm always, I love to see, especially with the, the younger generation, their look, you know, you just come out of school, you're working your job, and you're like, how can I give back? How can I do something meaningful? And I find that EWB is at one of those places where it's a lot of low hanging fruit out there where you can actually use what you're learning in classrooms and make a difference. So that's really awesome. Yeah. And I think for students too, coming through the program through a student chapter, they've kind of learned how to run a project which is very, you know, sets them ahead. The future. When we look at the future of the tunneling industry. What's on the horizon for us? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the last few decades have really, in tunneling, have been the age of mechanization. We've really seen the development of some fantastic machinery, particularly on the tunnel boring machine side, TBMs that can now go through any type of ground. They can you know, push steps. I was lucky enough to be involved in the, the Lake Mead intake project. It was the highest pressure tunnel in the world. We are mining at 15 bar pressure, which is like 450 feet of water pressure outside. That's no joke. Yeah. The industry's kind of really been pushed forward with advanced machinery and being able to do things in a more automated way. Going forwards, we're going to now enter the age of automation where we're going to see a lot of the repetitive nature of work being repeated by more robotic machinery and things like that. So we're already starting to see this in some of the tunnel boring machines, which rather than having a manual operator, it's controlled by algorithms. And you may have, I think in Malaysia, there's a, they've now set up so they can have the machine operator in the surface 
the machine runs itself and the operators just keep an overview on it and they can have several machines under their control rather than one. Um, obviously, that's taking people out of the tunnel, which is, you know, brings health and safety risks, puts them in a safer environment. It generally means, you know, better decisions are being made by the machine rather than relying on operators. So I think we're really going to move in, into that area with um, automated control, more precast and modular construction elements, more, you know, standardization in, in that area. Hopefully, it will drive down, you know, the cost of construction. We spend a lot of time redoing designs for slightly different diameters and slightly different shapes. And, you know, if we can move towards more of a Lego kit of parts and, you know, automated machines to put them in place, hopefully that will make tunnels even uh, more attractive. You think that's 10 years down the line, 30 years down the line, or tough to say? Yeah, the next couple of decades, I think we're starting to see it coming in. Uh, obviously, change takes time. You have to do your pilot projects, prove them out, and move slowly, step by step. People still have to run a business and uh, not expose themselves to too much risk. I think the other side of the change in the industry as well will be around sustainability and resilience. You know, we're starting to see requirements coming in and for embodied carbon limits and how to limit greenhouse gases caused by construction. In tunneling, I think the biggest challenge really is the lining. That's where most of our embodied carbon and greenhouse gas emissions come from is, you know, we've got a lot of concrete sitting there in the ground. So I can see development in the materials side of things to reduce that. And the other area is disposing of the material we excavate. What can we do with it rather than just truck it for 50 miles and throw it in a landfill? You know, can we be more creative and some projects are reusing, you know, spoilers aggregates or a cement replacement, things like that. So I think we'll see more of that too. As it relates to sustainability and embodied carbon, is that something that's uh, owner-driven or is the consultant coming to the table saying we should consider these things or the regulators? Like, where's the impetus to change coming from that you're seeing? I think it's coming from many sides, certainly some areas like projects I'm involved in in Ontario, Canada, there's government mandates coming down now to, to measure and reduce carbon. As organizations, certainly Arab, we're really pivoting big to you know make sustainability in these areas even more of a focus than they were before. So it's really becoming embodied. So every opportunity we get, we'll push that up to owners and say, can we think about doing this to improve projects? And with schemes like Envision certification out there for infrastructure projects as well that aim to improve the sustainability of projects, that's something that industry, I think, is pushing to encourage owners to think about these things through the design process. That's encouraging to hear. If it's coming from a multi-pronged approach, that means it happens and continues to happen. So it's a good thing. Really good thing. Yeah. All right. Well, before we take our break, what's the final piece of advice you'd like to give some of the young listeners that are uh, checking out the podcast for today? Just picking up some themes we talked about earlier. I think you know understanding the construction process is key. So I think if you're interested in tunneling, then spending time just understanding tunnel boring machines, you know, drill and blast excavation, that that sort of thing, how everything works is is very important. And then yes, mention the importance of networking. Just taking opportunities, whether it's people you work with, the start of your career, just building some really strong connections and various organizations that you can join and be part of, then I'd encourage that. I'm still in touch with people I worked with on, on my first jobs nearly 30 years ago now. And so it's a, you know, relying on that strong network will be great. 
And we're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with John and our career factor safety end segment. Stick around. Welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with John Hurt, tunnel practice leader at Arup. John, you've already had a very successful career. When you look back in your career, what's one thing you implemented to give yourself a career factor of safety? I think that's a great question. And, you know, I don't think I ever consciously said I need to put this in into my career to kind of protect myself. I think I always had a focus on making sure I was enjoying what I was doing. That's one reason I chose engineering and didn't become an accountant or something like that. The first point. And I think obviously, you know, hard work is important and treating people well, I think is essential for any industry, but uh, especially in a team sport like uh, engineering design, you need to look after people and develop them. Maybe looking back, that's what has given me a factor of safety. It wasn't deliberate at the time. I guess I would say found my home at Arab. Um, one thing in the Arab culture that's been described as is, is a really generous and helpful culture with uh, an emphasis on supporting others, giving advice and help to others, sharing information, that kind of thing. And I think that's rubbed off on me in my over 20 years with the company now. And I think that's another thing that helped me uh, get some safety in my career and helped me develop. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for coming on and sharing all the great insights that you did with us. You have great information that's here, and I'm sure this advice is going to be helpful for our listeners. Now, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get you? You have an email you want to share, you're on social media. Reach me through my LinkedIn page is probably the best way. So uh, it's just John Hurt and I'm at Arab. Well, thank you for coming on. This is a lot of fun. Keep up the great work. All right. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jared. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 57, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.com dot org.